Chapter forty two of The Bent Twig by Dorothy Canfield. The Slippervox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty two. Strange that we creatures of the petty ways, poor prisoners behind these fleshly bars, can sometimes think us thoughts with God ablaze, touching the fringes of the outer stars. Unquote. And so they went away. Lawrence, very white, stooping with the weight of his suitcase, his young eyes blurred and red, turned upon Judith with an infinite confidence in her strength. Judith herself was pale, but her eyes were dry and her lips firm in her grave, steadfast face, so like her mother's, except for the absence of the glint of humor. Sylvia kissed her good-bye, feeling almost a little fear of her resolute sister, but as she watched them go down the path, and noted the appealing drooping of the boy towards Judith. Sylvia was swept with a great wave of love and admiration, and courage. She turned to face the difficult days and nights before her, and forced herself to speak cheerfully to her father, who sat in a chair on the porch, watching the departing travelers and not seeing them. "'How splendid Judith is!' she cried, and went on with a break in the voice she tried to control. She will take mother's place for us all. Her father frowned slightly, as though she had interrupted him in some effort where concentration was necessary, but otherwise gave no sign that he heard her. Sylvia watched him anxiously through the window. Presently she saw him relax from his position of strained attention with a great sigh, almost a groan, and leaned back in his chair, covering his eyes with his hands. When he took them down, his face had the aged, ravaged expression of exhaustion which had so startled her on her arrival. Now she felt none of her frightened revulsion, but only an aching pity which sent her out to him in a rush, her arms outstretched, crying to him brokenly that he still had his children who loved him more than anything in the world. For the first time in her life, her father repelled her, shrinking away from her, with a brusque, involuntary recoil that shocked her, thrusting her arms roughly to one side and rising up hastily to retreat into the house. He said in a bitter, recriminating tone, "'You don't know what you are talking about,' and left her standing there, the tears frozen in her eyes. He went heavily upstairs to his study, on the top floor, and locked the door. Sylvia heard the key turn. It shut her into an intolerable solitude. She had not thought before that anything could seem worse than the desolation of her mother's absence. She felt a death-like sinking of her heart. She was afraid of her father, who no longer seemed her father, created to protect and cherish her, but some maniac stranger. She felt an impulse like that of a terrified child to run away, far away to someone who should stand before her and bear the brunt. She started up from her chair with panic haste, but the familiar room, saturated with recollections of her mother's gallant spirit, stood about her like a wall, shutting her in to the battle with her heart. Who was there to summon whom she could endure as a spectator of her father's condition? Her mother's empty chair stood opposite her, against the wall. She looked at it fixedly, and, drawing a long breath, sat down quietly. This act of courage brought a reward in the shape of a relaxation 
of the clutch on her throat and about her heart. Her mother's wise materialism came to her mind now, and she made a heartsick resolve that she would lead as physically normal a life as possible, working out of doors, forcing herself to eat, and that, above all things, she would henceforth deny herself the weakening luxury of tears. And yet, but an hour later, as she bent over her mother's flower-beds, blazing in the sun, she found the tears again streaming from her eyes. She tried to wipe them away, but they continued to rain down on her cheeks. Her tongue knew their saltness. She was profoundly alarmed and cowed by this irresistible weakness, and stood helplessly at bay among the languid roses. The sensation of her own utter weakness, prostrate before her dire need for strength, was as bitter as the taste of her tears. She stood there, among the sun-warmed flowers, looking like a symbolic figure of youth triumphant, and she felt herself to be in a black and windowless prison, where the very earth under her feet was treacherous, where everything betrayed her. Then, out of her need, her very great need, out of the wide and empty spaces of her inculcated unbelief, something rose up and overwhelmed her. The force stronger than herself, which she had longed to feel, blew upon her like a wind out of eternity. She found herself on her knees, her face hidden in her hands, sending out a passionate cry which transcended words, the child of the twentieth century, who had been taught not to pray, was praying. She did not know how long she knelt there before the world emerged from the white glory which had whirled down upon it and hidden it from her. But when she came to herself, her eyes were dry, and the weakening impulse to tears had gone. She stretched out her hands before her, and they did not tremble. The force stronger than herself was now in her own heart, from her mother's garden there rose a strong, fragrant exultation, as sweet as honey. For more than an hour, Sylvia worked steadily among the flowers, consciously wrought upon by the healing emanations from the crushed, spicy leaves, the warm earth, and the hot, pure breath of the summer wind on her face. Once she had a passing fancy that her mother stood near her, smiling, End of chapter 42